and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. We'll read today from the end of the book of Joshua. Here in chapter 24, Joshua has assembled all of the tribes of Israel, and he is near the end of his life. And he talks to the people, and he reminds them in this passage of all the wonderful things that God has done, all of the promises that God has kept. He goes all the way back to Abraham and how Abraham went on that great journey Joshua remembers Isaac and Esau and the way that God was faithful in the end to them both. Joshua remembers their enslavement in Egypt and how Moses was called to lead them into the promised land and God delivered them by parting the sea. Joshua remembers the wilderness with them and how God kept them alive and gave them the law. And then Joshua remembers the entrance into the promised land and how God said, I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. It sounds like it's about to be a celebratory speech kind of a capstone at the end of Joshua's amazing life. But then the tone turns. Fear the Lord, Joshua says. And the people say, we will, we do. And Joshua says, I don't think you can. If you forsake God, God will bring disaster on you and make an end of you after God has been good to you for so long. But the people say to Joshua, we will serve the Lord. We will obey God. And so on that day, Scripture says, Joshua renewed the covenant for the people. There at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and the laws of God. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law. And then he took a large stone and set it up under an oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people. This stone will be a witness against us. The stone has heard all the words the Lord has said and all the promises we have made. And then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own land that they had inherited. And that is the word of God for us, the people of God, we say. Thanks be to God. So last week... We read the beginning of Joshua, and you'll remember at the beginning of Joshua that God gives the people what? Land, right? God gives the people land. Giving land appears to be the point of the whole book of Joshua. Now, I like a God who gives people land, right? I I remember the creation story, right? We are made from the earth. We are made for the earth. We are made to enjoy the fruits of the earth. And so many people in our world are dispossessed of their land. They live as strangers on someone else's land. That ain't right. All people deserve a promised land to enjoy as a good and holy gift. Amen. Amen. 
But the book of Joshua does not simply say that God gives us land. It says God authors genocide for us to get it. It's a completely heretical idea. Now we know from our conversation last week that the events that Joshua describes never actually happened in the promised land. There was no Israelite invasion of that land. Joshua is a fever dream of national military strength. And because we know it never happened, it might then be easy for us to conclude that we can ignore Joshua. Just one more thing in the Bible that we skip over in favor of the parts that we like a little bit better. You don't do that, do you? Ooh, maybe you do. But I want to tell you, you cannot skip over Joshua. The truth, which you know as surely as you sit here today, is that the story Joshua describes did happen, but not way over there in the promised land. It happened on this land, right here. People of European ancestry claimed this land, and they betrayed, and they often butchered the people who lived here, and some of them did it in the name of God. So we cannot ignore the Joshua story because it's our story, right? This is our story. We live in the ethical and spiritual crisis that our ancestors created and left to us. What do we do? How should we be thinking about this land as people who worship a God who seems to endorse this kind of activity? That's what we should talk about today. So I want to be sure all of us are on the same page when it comes to understanding how Joshua happened in real life on this very land. The broad arc of the story goes something like this. For thousands of years, human beings lived on this land. They raised children on this land and made homes on this land and worshipped here and farmed this land and shared meals here together and sang songs and laughed and struggled and buried their dead on this land and they dreamed on this land. This land was essential to their being. And then 500 years ago, People from Europe arrived in this place and they made contact with the people who lived on this land. The Spanish came to Florida and the Southwest, the French came to Canada and the upper Midwest and the English came along the Atlantic coast. And the first contacts between these cultures varied, but as time went on, one difference between the Europeans and the indigenous people shaped their relationships more than any other, and that was their relationship to the land itself. For the people that lived here already, the land was much more like a living being even a sentient being. If you take time to read indigenous cosmologies or learn about the ceremonies and languages, indigenous people cultivated the land and hunted on it, but they never owned the land. You couldn't own the land. They related to the land. They respected it as you would respect another divinely infused living being. Europeans had a different understanding 
about human beings' relationship to land. Land was a thing to be used by us. Trees could be cut. Soil could be farmed. If there was gold in the streams, all the better. Land for Europeans was a commodity. It still is. It's a source of status and a source of wealth. Most important of all, for Europeans, land could be owned. Whatever is on the land I own is mine, and I can exclude you from it. The folks who lived here already believed that you could no more own land than you could own water or air or sunlight. These worldviews could not coexist. Folks who believe that land is a commodity to be owned can't exist alongside people who say land is a gift to be shared by everyone. The asymmetry made relationships more and more difficult. What happened here in Georgia is an example of what happened all across this continent. The Muscogee, named the Creek by the British, lived on this land for thousands of years. They made their first treaty with the British, their first promise to the British, the British promised to them in this treaty of 1771. The treaty restricted British settlers to the Atlantic coast of Georgia and Mobile Bay only. But the entire southeastern interior was reserved for the Muscogee. 1790, the Muscogee were invited to sign another treaty, this time with President Washington. It sought to establish, in the treaty's very own words, permanent peace and friendship. In the treaty, the Muscogee gave up more of their land, but they were assured by the United States government the right to preserve all remaining territory from any further settler expansion. The United States signed that document and never enforced it. So the Upper Creek tribes in northwest Georgia grew angry about these enforcement failures and they took up arms to protect what was being taken away. American troops led by Andrew Jackson attacked the Upper Creek and defeated them in 1814 at Horseshoe Bend in Alabama. Seven years later, 1821, the first Treaty of Indian Springs, that's the document that you're looking at there, the first page of that treaty. In the first Treaty of Indian Springs, the territory that makes up the state of Georgia was signed over by the Muscogee to us including the land that our church and your home sits on. DeKalb County was chartered one year later in 1822. Just a decade after that, when the same Andrew Jackson became president, Indian removal became the law of the land, and the thousands, the tens of thousands of Muscogee who were still living on their land in Georgia were forced to walk to Oklahoma. More than 20 million acres of ancestral lands were taken. And that land is now owned by you. A few years ago, I visited the Museum of the American Indian at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. 
And the day I happened to be there, there was an exhibit on the treaties that the U.S. government had signed with indigenous peoples. They brought them out of the National Archives, out of the Library of Congress where they are stored. I knew a bit about the treaties already, but the experience of standing in front of these documents was horrifying. You could read, plain as day, the words on the treaties in their carefully drawn script. You could read all of the promises that we made. Every single treaty had signatures of real human beings made in grand official signing ceremonies. These treaties carried the full force and weight of our government. And for every single treaty, every single treaty, the result was the same. Every treaty was broken. We white people broke every promise that we ever made. Well, I think not many people know that treaties were signed. <laughs> that might be it. <laughs> A treaty is fundamentally an agreement between two nations. Treaties are only made between sovereign governments. In fact, the U.S. has made more than 300 treaties with American Indian nations. The United States' existence when it first won the war against Great Britain was very precarious, and many countries around the world did not recognize the United States' sovereignty. So the U.S., as a way to assert that it was a sovereign, it made agreements with Native nations to sort of say to Europe, to Britain, hey, we're sovereign too, we can make these agreements. The idea that treaties somehow gave status or standing or land uh, to indigenous nations is probably the main fallacy that exists. I think that uh, many people view uh, treaties as special rights for Indians. They're not rights given to native nations. They're native nations, by and large, giving rights to the United States. I think a lot of people lack an understanding that that wherever they live, there's probably a treaty that gives them the right to live there, granted to them by Native nations. A nation uh, relinquished its, uh, um, the majority of its land rights, uh, its, its land holdings, its resource holdings, for the right to preserve its way of life. The rights that are reserved are more easily defined by the U.S. courts as property rights, but better defined by our, uh, our traditional and cultural understandings as being relationship rights to the land, the water, and all of the beings that, are, that we hunt and fish and share, share that world with. It's through treaties that I think we've been able to hold off a lot of forces that would like to see us erased from the continent. I'm trying to think of one treaty that from the perspective of the indigenous nation has been fully upheld and implemented. A lot of people disregard our treaties and say they're a thing of the past, they've been broken, let's forget about them. They would like to wipe away the treaty history of the United States, but uh, that's simply not how it works. Our United States Constitution recognizes that once a treaty is signed and ratified by the Senate, it becomes the quote, supreme law of the land. What that means is, is that a treaty, it's as much alive as the U.S. Constitution is. 
Are they living documents? Do they exist and they, do they transcend generations? The answer is absolutely yes. When people question the relevance of treaties and say, I don't think treaties are relevant, I, my response is, then just give us the land back. We're not talking about past history. We're talking about today. The best example of, of that is the Dakota Access Pipeline. I think we saw before the world community the violation of the 1868 and 1851 treaties uh, of the United States with uh, the Lakota Nation um, in Standing Rock. It brought the violation of treaty rights to today. Even though tribes have been experiencing those violations time after time after time, Treaties go both ways. This was a two-way street that it was a shared, uh, shared history. It's about mutual respect. Non-native peoples um, are treaty partners, the descendants of the treaty signers, you could say, on the, on the United States side. I think that the way that we bring everybody into the conversation is we have curriculum that accurately reflects the reality of what an Indian treaty is. That's something we do for the United States Constitution and three branches of government. Why don't we have a tribal component to that education? The ancestors who negotiated the treaties, they were doing their best to protect us, to protect our culture and protect our way of life. And to me, that's a responsibility and a, a way I should, in which I should live my life every day to remember, to honor those ancestors that fought so I could be here today. Treaties are living documents because tribes continue to breathe life into them. We continue to speak their terms. We continue to remember the promises. You and I live on land that was stolen. But it's even worse than that. We live in the wake and with the consequences of one of the most profound breaches of human trust ever perpetuated. Our ancestors gave their word. Their indigenous neighbors believed it. And we broke the trust again and again and again. So what do we do, right? What can we do? I was struck, and maybe you were too, by the final words in this message from Jody Archambault-Gillette. She says these treaties are living documents. The tribes continue to breathe life into them. We continue to speak their terms. We continue to remember the promises. That is the place of hope. If there is any way, any way at all to mend what was broken, we have to keep the promises of our ancestors too. We have to honor the treaties that were made, relationships, good relationships of every kind. You know this, good friendships, good marriages, 
Good agreements between neighbors and nations. Every healthy relationship is built on words and actions, on trust and reciprocity. Trust is the foundation of all human social life. These treaties are not part of the past. For our indigenous neighbors, they are a present reality, and they still offer Europeans the possibility of a renewed relationship if we are willing to keep the old promises. Keeping promises, friends, is what it means to be a person of faith. It's what the life of faith is all about. Joshua, if you read this book closely, is not a book about taking land. It's a book about keeping promises. In the very last chapter, Joshua is about to die. As he peers into the future of his people, he is afraid. Joshua looks around him at the people and he does not believe that we will keep our promises to God. We insist that we can, we will. And so Joshua relents at the end. He renews the covenant that we have with God, and he takes a large stone, and he sets it up under a tree in the holy place of the Lord. See, he says to the people, the stone will be a witness against us. And then that book has an open ending, doesn't it? The people are given the gift of land. God has been good to God's promise. Will you keep the covenant? Will you give and receive mercy in this land? Will you ensure justice in this land? Will you love your neighbor in this land? Joshua places the stone and the oak as witnesses. It's almost as if the land gets to decide if we are trustworthy or not. Let the church say, Amen.